0: Hey guys, um, what's going on? This is Robert Zell. I'm your host of the Rightish Podcast. Um, sitting in the Mercer Library, having a good old time. Uh, yeah, so let's get into it. Uh, today's topic is going to be gender and all the controversy around what creates masculinity and femininity, and you know how that all that stuff works. Because really, when we talk about gender. Uh, plays into a lot of very serious political debates, including the wage and pay gap argument, uh, the whole representation deal with, you know, different occupations and political offices. Also, we, we hear a lot about rape culture and toxic masculinity, whether that's inherent to masculinity or to men, or whether it's not. And so obviously people try to cite data and cite studies, and a lot of the time what happens is that they just misunderstand how to read it, misunderstand what kind of language the, the, the researchers are using and what language they need to use when discussing these issues, what the limitations of those studies are, and uh, what what the research tells us, and people's refusal to agree on the more obvious conclusions of this. So if you learn nothing else from this podcast, I hope you learn at least some of the things I'm about to tell you right now. For starters, we need to acknowledge that scientists who research this subject are not trying to make blanket statements about either gender, whether it's on the biological deterministic side or the blank slate side, believing that social interactions cause every difference between gender. Uh, They just mean to observe the differences on average that manifest themselves between men and women relating to these specific behaviors and characteristics, which means that even within one's own gender, there is a massive difference between the most masculine and feminine man and the most masculine and feminine woman, right? So there's, there's a range of your, your gender expression, I guess you could say. And, in fact, some women are more masculine than some men, as we, we see, you know, in, in, in tomboys. And uh, conversely, some men are more feminine than some women, as are non-tomboy dudes. So this isn't to say that we can't measure... The typical behavior of either sex and try to understand what the, why those differences are it's just it gets tricky so when talking about this stuff wordage is really important like the way you actually speak about it so don't get caught saying all women prefer this or all men like that because a you're probably wrong and b you fail to acknowledge that all men and women are individuals and none of the research is meant to be prescriptive but rather descriptive to describe what's going on. So that's really important. Also, men and women are more like than they are different. And that's also very important to know. So moving past that, um, we'll we'll try to just explain like, you know, what each side of the the aisle wants to argue. And then we'll kind of get into like, you know, what's the data on these things? So the left and the right have tried to explain these in different ways. The left supports the idea that socialization, and this is the left in general, but the left supports the idea that socialization and environment are the factors that cause these sort of things to emerge, and this is just in order to stay consistent with their tabula rasa or blank slate characterization of our species. Um, And the right takes a different approach and argues that our individual manifestations of gender are consequences of evolution which goes to support the idea of tradition and structure And let's keep this thing going Because there's no hope in changing it um, I mean, both sides have a logic you, know, you hear either one argue one way or another And it's like, okay, well, it makes sense You know, Stereotypes are real um, Obviously there are just differences That you can look at a man and a woman And see that they're a man or a woman But neither is entirely right And I want to go ahead and just Kind of let, let y'all know why that is so from this point forward, we're going to go ahead and discuss what you need to know in order to actually enter this discussion, and then we'll get into like what the differences actually are, or at least some of the differences, because there are a lot of differences, and it would take forever to actually get through each one of them and, and their cause, so we'll focus on a few, and then we'll go into some of the arguments for either side. Um, I will place an emphasis on the biological side, just because you won't really learn that side of the argument from your gender studies professor or the Cosmo magazine, just because it automatically gets labeled as sexist, uh, being biologically deterministic, and politically incorrect. And once we actually discuss that biological side and give it a foundation, then we'll kind of check out how social influences work in hand with those biological ones, and um, you know create the the the, the uh, manifestations of gender that we see today. So, all right. The data itself, how to view it. We need to understand what normal distributions are, and meta analyses are. So, w- with normal distributions, when looking into differences between gender on average, uh, researchers will get their data, they'll run out, and they'll plot it graphically, and they'll measure number of respondents or the percentage of respondents on the y-axis. So vertically, that's that's what they're trying to do. And then horizontally, on the x-axis, the, just the range of possible answers. Um, it's possible to actually measure these, these things, at least to an extent, uh, because social sciences scientists tend to rank order respondents, uh, depending on how they answer the question, or they'll ask questions with a numerical range, so like, you know, how are you feeling 1 to 7? Uh, and typically, we'll see something like, like approximating a bell-shaped curve, which... We can compare one curve to another curve on the same graph so we, we can look at a bell curve of men's answers and a bell curve of women's answers we can lay them on top of each other and we can kind of see the differences from there uh, we'll get back to that in just a second but we also want to talk about meta analyses which is important to understand so when you're looking at a study that study might be you know great it might be you know very interesting and, and have a lot of information however there, there are always there's always room for mistakes, room to uh, implement your, your personal bias. So you can use different statistical tools or different ask different questions to get different answers. Um, so it's important to look at the broader picture, but who really has time to read like 180 studies on a, on a topic? It, it's very time consuming. So one of the best ways to go is to look at the meta-analyses on the subject. So it, it, essentially it's uh, the attempt to take the totality of these studies and put them into one and average everything out so you get at least somewhat of an approximately correct answer and that way you get like the best picture possible so we know what a meta-analyses is we know what a normal distribution is so how do they really measure the differences between these data sets and so what do they do they uh, use a D score so a d-score basically measure it, measures the uh, the difference in the averages of these distributions. So it's calculated where you, you uh, subtract measurement one from measurement two, so the average of one from the average of the second one, and you divide it by the average standard deviation of both. And the standard deviation is basically when you look at a data distribution, how far off on average could you expect a, any given data point to be off from the average? So like... What's the average difference from the average, right? The, the variance, basically. And so when we look at D scores, uh, just to give a perspective, there, there's a bit of a, a range, right? So a small D score measurement could be described as a 0.2, meaning that when you divide uh, the difference in, in your averages over the standard deviation, you get like a 0.2. That's, that's relatively small. Like it, it might mean something, right? It might be somewhat statistically significant, However, when you look around you, you're probably not going to like see that, that measurement or whatever they're measuring like s- stick straight out to you. So that's a small one. Point 0.2 is small. Point 0.5 is, is about medium. So if you're looking at, at a distribution, you see like a point 0.5. That's something you could probably notice like in, in, in life. Aggression, physical aggression is definitely an example. That's point 0.4, which we'll get to later. Um, and then a large... Difference would be like 0.8 or greater, so zero point eight or greater, and these are things that are just blatantly obvious, like for example, men are taller than women. That d score would be like two point six, and that is just completely obvious, and something that we we wouldn't even need to argue about. So, all right, we we, we understand that now. At least we have a better idea of what that is. And again, if, if you are like confused or maybe you're like Okay, where can I learn more about this? A great book is um, uh, Gender, Nature, and Nurture. Or it might be – well, anyways, it, it's a book by Richard A. Lipa. He's, he's basically one of the, like, the top guys in this field. And uh, he wrote basically an, an intro guide to all of this stuff, which I've read and, and I thought it was marvelous. And he actually argues both sides of the debate and comes to the conclusion, which I, I come to because I trust the hell out of him that it really is, um, it isn't socially constructed, it isn't biologically determined, but it is a mix of the two, and you have somewhat of a biological basis that is uh, positively reinforced by social um, action. So, without further ado, let's, uh, let's walk into the argument for either, well, let's start the biological, and then we can talk about how nature reinforces those differences. So, biology and human sex differences so there are four kinds of relevant evidence um, which we can discuss in order to uh, give some kind of idea as to whether some some specific difference is biologically determined or at least in part biologically determined Um, so what those differences are would be the age at which at which those differences emerge Next would be the consistency of sex differences across cultures and over historical time. The third would be the consistency of those sex differences across species, so looking at like animal studies. And then next would be the relationship between physiological factors to behaviors that show sex differences. So we'll start with physical aggression. Physical aggression, um, again, it's a D-score of 0.4 with men leading – Aggression in general is about 0.29. Verbal aggression is 0.18. So men do have a lead in all all three of those. But physical aggression definitely stands out. And what that would look like would be 61% of men on average uh, tend to be more aggressive than women on average. And conversely, 61% of women tend to be less aggressive than the average man. So if you were to like pull people off the street um, – Uh, and you were to try to figure out like, okay, which one of these people is more aggressive just based on, based on gender, uh, you would be right, if you would pick the man every time, you'd be right 61% of the time, which as an average doesn't seem that significant. However, it's when you look at the extremes, the tail ends of those distributions that you see the greatest difference. So at the far end, you see much more men being uh, more aggressive than, the, than, than women. So that's why prison populations are like 95% male because at that far end of aggressiveness where you tend to get into trouble, you see men populating that end far more frequently. And that's just the nature of how that data distributes. Again, there are still women who are very, very aggressive and there are men who are very non-aggressive. So that's just something we need to talk about. (coughs) So the evidence um, for this would be being biological would be in part that rough and tumble play emerges during children's third year of life as early as these kids can be observed in social settings so not only do boys and girls actually differ in aggression but fantasy aggression as well and I'm taking this from uh, Richard A. Lepa's book I'm quoting him so <laughs> what you see there's actually a study of like 500 stories made up by preschoolers and we saw those violent themes being present in 87% of boys' stories and only 17% of girls' stories. And, it, I mean, that's pretty, pretty substantial, pretty substantial. Um, going on to, to culture, men are generally more aggressive. Um, it, it's true across, across cultures, pr- really every culture, With when looking at violent crimes, murders, assaults, warfare, suicide... Uh, even though they do vary across cultures, it is just, it is just there. Uh, next would be, <laughs> be uh, across species. So we see uh, rough and rough and tumble play, uh, mock aggression, actual aggression in early age in males. You know, when, whether we're looking at, at rhesus monkeys or looking at rats. Um, even though rhesus monkeys in part learn learn their aggression uh, socially, learn how to be aggressive socially we do see that that difference um, in in aggression take place early on. Also, we see correlational studies that show significant links between human aggression and testosterone. So so high testosterone seems to be at least somewhat, or very highly related to aggressiveness, particularly when provoked. Um, Situational triggers work in concert with testosterone but should not concern the fact that high testosterone it does increase the likelihood of male aggression. So moving on to visual and spatial abilities, the difference we see in that, um, particularly, is that men generally lead. It's a 0.45 D score, meaning that is pretty something you would probably notice. However, when we look at mental rotation specifically, we see a, a 0.73 score which is very i mean it's pretty damn significant meaning that 77 percent of men are able to better mentally rotate objects than the average woman not to say that there are women who are really kick ass at mentally rotating objects but you know there is there is an advantage in that sense and and it's actually very interesting thinking about um estrogen and 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 women and how the uh the greater amount of estrogen you have the more verbally fluent you are that's a very interesting correlation that i noticed reading this book and uh it's interesting also testosterone actually has a negative correlation with verbal fluency so when you have when you have a very high testosterone guy it's harder for that guy typically to speak very fluently and to speak um in a way that's not just all jumbled up and and uh yeah it's very interesting very interesting but anyway, so visual-spatial tests. Um, again, men tend to exceed women in certain kinds of visual-spatial ability, although it's interesting, women actually tend to be better when it comes to uh, visual-spatial ability, when it comes to like, memorizing what where things are in a room, because women tend to have, on average, better memory than, than most men, right? <clears throat> so anyways, some studies have shown these differences in preschoolers, but most of the stable and substantial differences that we see are gonna be like after puberty, like around high school and on. And uh, these actually really haven't um, differed much you know, over the, the past few decades just, I mean, even relating to like, all this uh, this uh, gender equality stuff, you, you still see this, this um, advantage play out and continue. Uh, what we also see is that these differences are also constant across cultures. So we see this in studies uh, with Britain, pe- British people, people from Ghana, Japan, India, Norway, South Africa, Australia, and the United States, and <clears throat> they are e- equally strong for students pursuing certain career paths within those cohorts. So, if you looked at like you know engineering students, right, and you took took the men and women in those in those uh, those fields, and you compared it, you still saw a visual spatial um, disparity, and. And then you go to, you know, like nursing or, or liberal arts or uh, the humanities or whatever You see those differences still manifesting themselves So that's, that's an interesting thing And we also see this, this case in um, uh, studies of like moles and rats like, uh, like, you know, navigating through little mazes that they set up for them Kind of torturing them, which is awful But, it, you know, that's, that's the nature of animals, animal research uh, Brain structures Uh, also reflect visual spatial ability more particularly the hippocampus which which um, is interesting because it it is mostly shaped uh, via the exposure to prenatal hormones and uh, that's that's basically where most of the difference comes because and, and again when you're talking about gender a lot of it revolves around especially on the biological side exposure to prenatal hormones so you see a pretty high correlation between like masculine activities and greater prenatal hormone levels of testosterone and conversely when there are lower levels of testosterone you see greater uh, femininity and it's very interesting very interesting um but moving on to sexual behavior so obviously there's a there's a pretty strong correlation between what gender you are and what gender you're or what what sex you are and what sex you're attracted to so for people attracted to women men lead this category with a D score of 3.52 which, remember, 0.8 was significant. 3.52 is insane. Like, there's no way you can't notice it. Um, with with uh, being attracted to men, women actually lead that category 3.99, which is also massive. Um, so that's that's very interesting to look at. And there are also some theories on, like, like why, um, why, you know, we have this express itself. In, uh, in society, at least from the biological side. So there are these biological evolutionary biologists who have this theory of, of homosexuality. Um, and the theories uh, vary from either homosexuality is maintained through kin selection or genetic relatives of homosexuals. Uh, it's fostered. Um, fostering might actually decrease reproductive fitness in one sex, but also produce in, uh, an increase in fitness in the other sex. And that, in combination, um, it may lead infrequently to homosexuality in some individuals, which may at the same time foster traits that have o- offsetting reproductive value for most individuals, whatever that means. <laughs> but you um, know, very, very interesting, I guess. But uh, you know, that, that's at least the the um, the biological explanation. Although I think there's there's some research to suggest that you know it, it may be closer to like 50 and that's what we'll get to when we're talking about um, uh, behavioral genetic studies, which which are actually really interesting. We should have a we should have a podcast on that in and of itself by itself. But uh, anyways, okay, we'll go back to sex. All right, so um, those are just attractiveness to men and women, uh, with with respect to what what is actually attractive, just personality wise and and physically, um, social class and ambitiousness uh, is more important. Generally speaking, to women as opposed to men Women lead this category uh, 0.69, 0.67 Respectively um, On average And with physical attractiveness, it wouldn't surprise you uh, Men tend to lead this category with a D-score of 0.54 And also, it's important to note that Men are more interested on average than women in casual sex And engage in more acts of sex than women do for the most part on average Uh, Men tend to rate youth and beauty, as we've talked about, higher, Um, and yeah. So that's what what the data kind of pulls out. Um, All right, so that is gender and sex and all that fun stuff. So behavioral genetic studies. So this is actually very interesting. So we have um, we actually have differences that manifest themselves in society, such as you know for whatever reason we see this massive disparity. in uh men going into the gen in- <laughs> sorry i was about to say gender studies like that <laughs> oh my god but uh, men tend to be more interested in like the stem fields so like like uh, engineering or mathematics and and women tend to be more interested in in uh more people related fields so like you know like social working and uh like you know the medical field the health field and so there is a major difference we see we see approximately 85, 86% of men in most societies uh, preferring this this uh, things-oriented work path, which, you know, because men, on, on average, are more interested in things than they are with people. And then, conversely, women tend to be more interested in people than they are with things with the same kind of disparity. So it's like 86% of women are more, more uh, interested in, in people than they are with things than the average man. And... <laughs> And uh, with that, that difference in uh, career and occupation preference, we actually have a really strong study um, that, you know, if you know Jordan Peterson, he cites this study a lot. So, so, you know, as a result of this this child-rearing public schooling practice in the Scandinavian countries, which is designed to eliminate um, the, the idea of, like, there being differences between genders, uh, gender stereotypes, and such, just so that, you know, because again, the whole idea of egalitarianism is equality of opportunity, and they, and they want, you know, opportunities for these people, and they don't want people to be, uh, I guess, forced to make choices that aren't really in their best interest. They decided, like, okay, we're going to um, incorporate time during recess to where, you know, you have to play with people of the other gender. Uh, you have to play with, if you're going to play with trucks, you have to play with dolls, etc. Et cetera. Um, so these countries went further than anywhere else. in in trying to um socially negate these differences uh yet um what we actually saw as a long-term result was was really surprising it showed greater polarization within the workforce in areas such as engineering and nursing which ended up having proportions of like like ratios of like 20 to one you know like so for engineering was was, it was like 20 to one for for engineers that are male to engineers that are female and for nursing, it was, it was the same except for women. So it was 20 to 1. So for every, every 20 females in nursing, there was like one guy, which is even more than like in the United States. So, so at least the finding that, that guys like Peterson or Pinker would pull from it is that, okay, well, you, know, you might try to eliminate that, that idea or that factor, but sometimes doing that will actually um, will, will uh, further embolden the other so it makes it so that the other factor comes out even more, which is weird, but you know it, it happened. So, given this review, like I'm not trying to say that we are all just, you know, determined and, and, and we're going to be forced to be, you know, these certain uh, things. I'm not saying that you know like we're we're, we're doomed to a, a a gender expression of X. What I'm saying is that there are certain factors that play into it. Obviously, we have free will. We can make choices. Uh, we can, you know, be better people uh, or be different people if we want to. But, you know, to look at these differences and to say, "Oh, that's bad," you know, we don't really know. We don't know. And, and indeed, there are like social factors that do play into it. So, when you have a small difference that manifests itself through some perhaps biological cause, uh, we see differences that that actually get bigger and bigger. Because of socialization, so, you know, there's a creation of stereotypes, and those stereotypes kind of perpetuate, and they create these positive feedback loops to where, where you know, there's this difference initially, and then, then people notice the difference and expect it, and then all of a sudden, you know, like, people act it out, you know, because they feel like, okay, well, you know, maybe, for example, I'm expected to be more, you know, physically tough and aggressive, then, you know, you act it out, and then the more you act it out, the more people are like, oh, well, you know, like, yeah, people really are, guys really are more aggressive. And then it kind of builds into itself, and that absolutely is true. I think um, a, lot of, a lot of women would probably say that they're expected to do certain things that men aren't. There, there are these uh, certain roles that we've kind of enforced throughout our culture. Also, you know, there, there are certain stereotypes that are portrayed uh, through the media, through, through family figures, through tradition, uh, even in, in school we see it um, And it's, it's just, you know, it, it does play, play a role It absolutely does play a role um, And that's, that's a really interesting debate to, to look at You know, the, the nature versus nurture But uh, that, that is really what it comes down to It comes down to uh, the fact that they actually play off of each other a lot And that is the final conclusion of Richard A. Lipa uh, The guy who um, I'm referencing uh, throughout this whole thing I mean, he really is brilliant um, but yeah, looking looking at that, it might give us a better lens, as or a better way of looking, um, you know, at, at this whole situation or all these situations: the pay gap, toxic masculinity, rape culture, etc. You know, it was interesting. We were talking about whether <laughs> aggression was, or, or the fact that you know men men hurt women more than women hurt men is that really a, a biological factor and you know, we can say that you know, in part, there's there's evidence to suggest that you know maybe men are um, more aggressive on average. But then again, when, when you're looking at at crime, when you're looking at you know like thing, brutal things like murder and rape, you, you can't really put that on all men, right? There, there's a distinct there's a distinction that has to be made. It's the more aggressive, the more um, the more uh, I guess you could say dangerous people who are more likely to do those things. And and frankly, there are men who who you can never expect to do, any, to do anything like that. And it's, you know, it, we, we get into this, this whole thing where it's like all men are like this and all women are like this. And it's really dangerous. It's very collectivistic. And um, I think it's the job of, of um, you know, perhaps social scientists or, or concerned people like ourselves to say, look, you're, you're really observing the data incorrectly. Uh, and, and we need to understand again what that data is meant to show. It's meant to show differences on average. And we can't extrapolate to the individual because that would be just wrong. There, there are definitely cases of individuals who, who break the mold, who are different. And um, again, hyper-aggressive males are, are not the norm. Uh, that's not the masculinity that men look, look towards as something that is good. And uh, I think it's important to understand that. <laughs> so with that being said, um, yeah, that's, that's pretty much what I have on on gender. What I have, at least initially, we might talk about the gender pay gap, we might talk about toxic masculinity, we might talk about uh, X, Y, and Z relating to gender, but it's important to understand at least a little bit of the science behind it, a little bit of um, how the data works and how they make these conclusions, Uh, but other than that, thank you guys for listening, it was really a pleasure to talk to you guys. Let me know if you have any questions or any comments. Again, this is a very controversial field. I, I want to make sure that I spoke very clearly. If I wasn't clear about anything, I will make sure to clarify. Um, but other than that, thank you guys so much, and I hope you have a wonderful week. All right, bye.